Hello everyone, Simon Jacobson here, and we will be speaking about a fundamental topic, morality. How to define your moral standards. It's self-understood that morality lies at the heart of any healthy society. Without some type of mutually agreed upon values, standards, and ethics, people left to their own self-interest would just tear each other apart. Even with laws and with um, enforcement, we see it's not a simple matter. In the words of the, the classic words of the ethics of the fathers, without the fear of some authority, one person would swallow up another. And we see it, history is testifies and witness to that um, disjointedness, um, you can, which goes all the way to the point of divisiveness and war and discord, that everything that comes with diverse opinions, self-interest, and all that that leads to the conflicts between individuals and individuals. Even if So the question, of course, is, then how do you define morality? Who defines it? If it's one person defining it and another person has a different opinion, we're back to square one. Even if you're able to establish a constitution of a government, where, as I said, mutually agreed upon laws that govern society, that has its limits. That can be with certain areas where people agree, and if they disagree, there's, a, there's recourse by going to court, by media, through mediation, lawsuits, a system of law and order. But how about all those areas that are beyond the governance of any constitution of any government. The things we do in the privacy of our own homes, the privacy of our own lives and families. Who governs? And how do you determine the moral standards there? How do you define what's virtue, virtue and what is vice? Now it seems such an obvious question that everybody would be asking it. But most people don't ask it because we grow into a family or a society where there's certain accepted mores that we... Uh, either conform to or follow, and don't ask many questions. But when you do get to that philosophical question, what defines right and wrong, it's very thorny. Especially today when you look at the polarization in this country, the United States, and you see the different opinions, and the politics, and the corruption involved, and what people will go through, the lengths they'll go to undermine another, you wonder, what are they driven by? Are we talking here about all kinds of pure people driven simply to know what's right and wrong? Or are they driven by their own in power? Because even when you have governments, and especially democratic governments, that are freely elected by the people, a nation by the people, for the people, and so on, a country for the people, by the people, you still see what, what, what can happen when you get into power. So who determines what is correct, what is right, what is wrong? What is healthy, what is unhealthy? So yes, we could say that there are certain basic things, if I don't infringe on your property or on your rights or on your life, what I do in my privacy is my business. So that may be true that others cannot tell you what to do. But what governs you? What determines? And why can't we do certain things in the privacy of our own lives that can actually be quite destructive? I don't even want to mention how far that can go when it comes to people's behavior with their own families themselves, with their children, and so on. Once they have absolutely no guidelines, or they're driven by self-interest, or they're driven by their own subjectivity. 
At the end of the day, our own devices are subjective. So the, so the big question is, what defines and how does one define morality? So let's throw in a few more questions into this topic. Is being a moral creature something that is acquired or something that is wired within us? Is it nurture or nature? We all understand from a point of view of nurture that we need guidelines. You know, when you have human beings, more than one human being on earth, you need guidelines. You need red lights and green lights, figuratively speaking, that guide and say that we can't all be driving the same, that different directions at the same time. So for coexistence and for our ability to be simply to live and survive, it makes sense. Even a selfish human being makes sense that I have some guidelines or else we all will destroy each other. But you could argue that's just a human creation that has nothing to do with our nature. It has to do with survival. So survival requires certain games, certain rules. Or is it something, do we have a moral gene, so to speak? Do we have something that we are inherent within us that helps dictate what is right and what is wrong, what is healthy, what is unhealthy? Because if you think about it, our body definitely tells us when something is unhealthy, you'll spit it out. If you eat something that is un... un, un it, it, I mean, it could, it, it's true, you could have something poisonous and it could deceive the body. But very often the body will reject something that is unhealthy for the body. When a person is feeling a cold or a person is feeling pain, these are warning signals that the body naturally has telling you there's a problem and do something about it. So an argument can be made that we have a wiring, we have a, in our DNA, we have a certain elements of instincts and impulses and natural reactions that warn us of a problem, that tell us when there's a problem, and that try to realign ourselves to be a more healthier person. And you see this in any given situation where a person, let's say, does something that's self-destructive, something mutilating or in some other way hurt themselves, intentional or unintentional, the body will go into a whole series of motions to protect itself. It will fight the infections, it will fight the bacteria. There's a whole series of things that the body does without our effort. The healing process that a physician, a doctor, a professional helps is to help facilitate. Sometimes the infection or sometimes the illness or the injury is so strong that you need something to help get the healing process working and reinforcing it or giving it the platform, a, a, a space for it to be able to take effect. But the natural body does have natural healing, healing powers and has natural instincts and so on. So we could argue perhaps the same thing with morality. Of course, you have to add into the equation, especially when you study the history of all the different thinkers on what morality is from the early ages to the middle ages to the modern age, a big issue, of course, is nobody wants to be told what to do. You know, if the human body consumes something that's, that's unhealthy or does something wrong, we all want our body to react because we want, we want it to expel and reject that, uh, that threat or danger. But when it comes to moral choices, nobody wants to be told what to do. That still doesn't mean there isn't an inherent morality. We just may be fighting it for our own self-interest and our own subjective interest, so we decide to ignore certain things that instinctively we would, not, we would avoid doing. So let's take it now from another angle. And I'm speaking here from perspective, even though I, often, I present the Torah perspective, which is based on 
the axiom that there is a God and so on. But let me talk about it from a point of view of rationale argument. Is it truly possible to have a moral system without some higher authority, without answering to some higher authority? It's a good question. It's a philosophical question. And I'm intentionally stating, it's not, I, am not, I don't want to invoke the religious argument. Now, if someone who believes in God, and God created us, and God told us what to do. We'll talk about that some more later. But right now I'm talking from the perspective of two rational human beings, or even one rational person, asking the question, can you truly have a moral standard that, that, uh, that works without with, um, out some type of higher authority, higher calling, some accountability? Because as I said before, if you completely rely on our own devices, we are subjective creatures. Self-interest comes into play. And I will always look out for myself. And if it's at your expense, so if a nicer guy, I may try to compensate, or I may try to avoid hurting somebody else, but if not, you're not such a nice person, survival of the fittest, and I take care of my needs first. So if there's no answering to anyone, whether to other people, or to a higher calling, or to higher authority, what is the basis of morality? Why should you not take away someone else's property? Why should you not steal or murder? You wouldn't necessarily even call it those words. Would, it, would, it, would it, you call a predator in the wild a murderer? No. That's its natural well, its instincts. It's its natural way of surviving. It needs to eat a meal. So it will prey on the weaker species, the ones that it could consume for its own interests. We don't call it murder. It's not even a choice. It's the way they're wired. Talk about wiring. So the question then is, without some answering to any higher authority, is it possible to have a morality? So I've read some of the arguments from the radical atheists, or even regular atheists, there are many different types, Richard Dawkins, selfish gene, and so on. And their argument essentially comes down to that human beings, because they're intelligent, they understand that there's a, compassion is a virtue by evolution, not because it's right, that's how we feel. We feel better when we're compassionate. Society serves society better when we are compassionate. It even serves our selfishness better. Therefore, we create rules of compassion. So yes, we can have our narcissistic instincts that talk about just me, me, me. In Freudian language, the id, that it's about my own pleasure, and that all, all that matter. But you can also have a referee your ego and superego, that check that and say, well, to work with others, to bring up a healthy family, and so on, there needs to be um, your rational argument. You need to have some laws of compassion. That's essentially the evolutionary argument for it, the biological argument. The problem is what defines morality. So you could say, fine, compassion, most people can, but compassion too. What are the rules of compassion? When should you be compassionate? When should you not? Let's take the concept we see now, the caravan marching toward the southern border of the United States. We know the concept of, of receiving guests and welcoming guests is a tremendous, great deed, good deed. The United States has been a haven. Actually, all the people here, after they kill the natives, are all immigrants. So it's a haven, a welcoming to all guests. But is there a limit? Let's talk about it in a microcosm. You have guests in your home. You open your doors for everybody to come in any time, as many people. No, you have to regulate it. So what defines compassion? How far do you go? How much sacrifice do you make? So when it comes, if it's purely a biological thing, then it comes down to what the consensus is of several individuals or a community or a group that says, this is compassionate, this is not compassionate. 
But in essence, we're back to square one. We've just added that we are also wired and we have elements within us that understand for survival, we need to have some form of ethics and morality. But what that ethics and morality, again, who defines that? And when push comes to shove, when there's a situation where you are feel compromised, will you abide by these laws? Or you'll go by them when things are comfortable, but when someone pushes you, if, for example, you're in a situation where there's no food, like we find stories with avalanches and others where normal, regular people turned on each other to the point of cannibalism, which goes against the instinct of every human, any human being, people reverted, resorted to that because they were so desperate. When you're tortured, when you're hurt, what will you do? How much sacrifice will you sacrifice your own interests for someone else? So, so we just pushed off the question, and we just broadened the yes, that there is an element of compassion in a society. But what defines that compassion is definitely not absolute and definitely arbitrary and actually can be broken if a person feels that for their survival. Now, compassion is not appropriate. When it's appropriate, I'll do it. And who decides? Who's the arbiter? Who's the determiner? Who's the judge? Yourself. So the response to that from the so-called that school of thought where there's no higher authority, would be, yes, life is not perfect. We try our best. And if it's indeed something you can, uh, you can legislate and you can litigate, you can sue someone if you feel they've infringed on your, on your interests. And that's a story. And it's not a perfect system. But something's lacking because the truth is, not only is it arbitrary, it can be one extreme to the next. I'll use one example. The, the time of the Greeks, the ancient Greeks, they considered the Jewish people barbaric because they would not follow the custom of the land. And what was the custom of the land? That a child born to parents that had any handicap or mental illness, or I don't know if they called it Down syndrome then, or whatever they considered to be a defect, they put that child to death. And they saw that as compassion. They saw that as a, a compassion. Why? Put the child out of its misery, put the parents out of a life of misery, and move on. Today, most Americans, most people in the West would consider that barbaric. So they considered not killing the child barbaric. Today, we consider killing that child barbaric. There may be exceptions, but that's the consensus. So how do you determine this? Okay, so the argument is you go by the majority. Now the majority, we've either evolved or we have more sensitivity or we realize that these children have qualities we didn't appreciate once. Whatever the reason is. But at least for myself, there's something lacking. Because is that it? Is that the story? So the other side of the argument is, the rational side, is no. For morality and ethics to really have value and not be arbitrary and not be compromised when, when convenient, we need to have some answer, some accountability to something higher than ourselves. And the Nazis are always are, are invoked here because they have the classic example. Not considered a third world country, not considered primitive, considered some of the more, most advanced societies with philosophy and music and science and art and medicine and advancements in so many areas. Germany, with all its writers and poets and, and all the, 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 the talent that they had, considered a modern society. And yet, their own obscene way determined to turn on the Jewish people and others that they considered to be inferior, unacceptable to society, 
in their dream of an pure Aryan race and saw the other human beings as literally being like infection, like a bacteria. And therefore can be eliminated and, and treated literally as you would kill bacteria with gas, exactly as you would poison with toxins, rodents, or other um, um, insects that invade your home. And that's what they resorted to. And books and books have been written to analyze how could human beings fall st- stoop to such a level of mistreating people in the most inhumane ways. And, and being happy about it, celebrating, laughing. And of course the answer is because they took morality in their own hands. They decided they are God. And we decide what is right, what is wrong, who deserves to live, who does not deserve to live. And when that gets to your head and you have that power, you can become the most corrupt. And not just corrupt, I say obscene, I don't even have the right words to use for it. It's not the only time in society that has happened. But that's a modern example just in the last hundred years. So the thinkers of our time, the thinkers of, I would say, the modern age from the time of the Enlightenment, struggled with this discussion because there was a time where, they were, where the countries, were, where nations were ruled, empires and nations were ruled by monarchs. They decided what was right and wrong. And if you had someone that was cruel and sadistic, their determination of what was right and wrong completely controlled people and actually to the point of destroying at will whoever they wanted. There was absolute power in the hands of a tyrant. Now, if we were lucky, it could have been a benevolent despot. But nevertheless, it was dependent on one individual. But once the winds of change began to blow through Europe and the concept of human rights began to emerge, which ultimately evolved in the first institutionalized version of that, the different philosophers and thinkers that spoke about it, for, for, even for centuries, when finally the United States Constitution and Declaration of Independence declared what? that we consider these truths to be self-evident. And what is self-evident? means self-evident for a rational mind that all men are created equal. And by virtue of that, are endowed with inalienable rights from the Creator. Now, they were deists. They were not particularly religious. But they realized exactly what the Nazis, what can happen, the extreme of the Nazis, who manifested it, when you don't have that higher authority. I mentioned this a number of times. I've never heard a legal expert, a constitutional, uh, um, constitutional lawyer, a constitutional uh, scholar, explain why they needed to put into the declaration the words created equal and creator, which, of course, complicates matters because then you get into the matters of separation of church and state. So freedom of religion, yes, but they put the word creator in there, and it's there till this day. And it's reflected in our currency. We're the only currency on earth where it says in God, we trust the word God and trust in God. All in that spirit. Why couldn't they just said all men, and I'll say men meaning all human beings, even though they may not have meant it, but it ultimately is interpreted that way. All humans are, are born equal. All humans are equal. All men are created, created equal. And by the and endowed by the creator with inalienable rights. So my explanation is because they realize if they take out the word created or creator, and there's no higher force that we all 
are equal under the, the eyes of that higher force, we're back to square one. Because if you say all men are born equal, so maybe some men will come, the majority, and say, you know what? But there may be an exception. Who says some people are equal? Maybe they're not equal. But once you say created, we all didn't create ourselves. There's a higher creator. And that creator endowed us with rights. That nobody can say, I'm the creator. I replace the creator. I represent the creator. And that guarantees it to be absolute, airtight, and can never be changed. As I said, I haven't seen this written, but this makes total sense because that gives it absolute. They wanted absolute foundation of that, mes- that, that message. Now, it's interesting. Ironically, that gives the person the right to actually, the freedom of speech and the freedom of expression, to actually say there is no creator. I wonder if someone who did not believe in a creator would give someone the right to say there is a creator. So actually that statement that all men are created equal and, and are endowed with rights, and one of the rights is freedom of expression, freedom of speech, to pursue their, what they consider to be happiness, gives them the ability and the right to actually defy a creator and say there is no creator and actually even do things that may offend others through speech. They can't do things to hurt someone. But, but speech, they can have hate speech, and all the other rights that a person has, which is the downside, but inevitable right, if you're going to have freedom of speech, you can also have the freedom of saying something that may be offensive. And of course, these things have been debated as well in the courts, but you get the general gist of it. But the principle remains that everybody has those rights and nobody can take them away from us. And the country has stood on those foundations. Now, this doesn't mean there's no corruption and this doesn't mean that people don't abuse the rights, and so on. But it still stands there, it's still stated, and has given the people in this nation, and that message has spread to many other nations in the world, an absolute spine, an absolute foundation for morality. And that's the rational argument for a higher authority. You want to call it creator, call it God, call it the essence, call it um, undefined layers of, un, uh, uh, unconscious layers of undefined energy. Whatever you want to call it, the name is semantics, but the means it's not you. Not, you're, the, you're not the creator of yourself and of others. You were put here. You were born here. You were placed here. And therefore, you do not control the rights of anybody. And everybody has equal rights. You can't even absolve yourself of your own rights. You have these rights. Now, obviously, if you introduce into this discussion the concept of faith, the concept of believing or even understanding that nothing creates itself and that everything in this world has a source and has a root and has a beginning and you come to the conclusion that there is some form of supreme deity, supreme being, again, use whatever word you want, a creator, a first cause, then obviously, then, of course, the whole picture becomes far richer. It's not just through process of elimination that you logically come to the decision that is what some, is called, some call ethical monotheism. That for ethics to have any value, you need to have some form of belief in or some acceptance of a creator like in the Declaration of Independence. But if you go further, and you say that someone actually, that an entity that is nothing like us created existence. And it's an entity that you cannot ask the question who created the creator because the creator is not like us. 
Creator, by definition, means must a, a, a necessary existence, an absolute existence. And created existence with design and purpose, as we see in the universe, it's tremendous coordination, tremendous plan and design, and very hard to say it's an accident. Impossible, actually, to say it's an accident. Then it takes on a whole new dimension. Because then you ask the question, why did this God create existence? And the why, since this design must have a reason. And the reason has to be for us to achieve something. So like anything, why would you build this building? Why do you write a book? Why do you open a business? Everything has a purpose. And it's actually design precedes the production. So then there's a very legitimate question to say why. And once you have the answer why, that becomes the set of laws of ethics and morals that we need to live by. Not just because we need a higher power, a creator to say, all men are created equal and a creator that endows us with equal rights. But because by virtue of a creator, by the mere definition of design, means we need, we are accountable to live up to this design. We are accountable to, to fulfill and realize our mission in this world. And that brings me back to how we are wired. The fact of the matter is, even though it may be easier to be selfish and to step on another and hurt another, but an average human being, except perhaps psychopaths or sociopaths, and we call them that for a reason, have a conscience and feel bad when someone is hurt. Now, you can hurt somebody and then become so numb that you, like, like I said before with the Nazis, that it doesn't even bother you. Some people kill their conscience or try to kill their conscience. But that requires effort. The fact of the matter is, when you see someone crying, we respond whether it's due to mirror neurons or due to some type of inner unity that we all experience, or it's simply due to the fact that we feel compassion because we ourselves are, that can be that person. All the different reasons, which I'm not going to get into, it's not the scope of this discussion. All of it, but there's something about us that feels it. If you see an injustice done, you see a young child killed in an accident, or murdered, or tragedy, you have to, even with a heart of stone, most of us would feel compassion. Even if it's not our own child, God forbid. Even if it's not a child of a relative, a stranger. Because there's something, you know, the unfairness. You see people losing parents at young age. You see other forms of abuse. Sometimes things that we don't have control over. Some things are man-induced, man-made. Man-made problems that we bring upon ourselves. It's heartbreaking. Our heart breaks. Where does that come from? So some argue that comes from our education, from our culture. We're trained. Really? So firstly, you can study young children. And today there are studies when they see another child in pain, even toddlers, they react. I saw recently a study, a test, where they put children and and one child was crying or adult, um, and, and another child was not crying, and children show natural empathy. And no one trained them. And if you think about it, even as an adult, you don't need to re- even resort to children, even as an adult, is it something purely acquired? There's nothing natural about our empathy, about our compassion. So yes, you can make an argument, as I said earlier, the biological evolutionary argument, that it's all part of survival of the fittest, and survival and survival. But let's just, for argument's sake, take an alternative approach, alternative theory. 
And you tell me what sounds more eloquent, what resonates more. And the alternative theory is that we were created by design. And that design is purpose. And purpose is to live virtuous lives, even though we also have a selfish inclination. And that's part of the battle, to overcome that inclination, live virtuous lives, and, and create a home for the divine in this world. Let's, for argument's sake, say I have no proof for it. Just that's a theory. But that theory resonates very deeply. Because then it makes so much sense why we feel that empathy. That makes so much sense because it fits the design. And then it gives a whole other dimension to what I said before that we need for ethics and morality, we need some higher authority because we need absolute and account- absolute, and some absolute account- some accountability and some absolute truth that we all have to accept that's higher than ourselves, a higher truth. Then it works. It's not just a higher truth. It's actually a higher truth that defines our lives and giving us a blueprint of how to be the best type of person. Let's take it a step further. I mentioned before that the human body has natural immunity and natural reactions. Something healthy, the body will absorb and it will thrive. You'll see a body nourished, thrives. A body that is depleted or suffocated or, or, or um, suffering from hunger, malnutrition, thirst, deprived, will not thrive. Just like a plant in the ground. You water it, it will blossom and flourish. You don't water it, you deprive it, you, you um, a drought, what will happen? It will wither. Same with human beings. And it's not just food. We need food and drink and oxygen and healthy oxygen, healthy air, and love and companionship. So there's a whole series of things that everyone can agree makes the organism a healthier one. Let's, for argument's sake, we're talking about the things we agree on. Then there's questions about, let's say, ethical choices. If you're kind to someone, does that make you thrive? Today we see, yes, we see the power of generosity. We see the power of gratitude. That's lately a big topic, gratitude. How gratitude literally makes a person happier, live longer, more content, and just actualize more. more. So there are things that even on a scientific and observational level that we can see cause the organism to work better. So you could argue, again, the biological argument, which is, you could explain anything. That's also part of how the gene functions, because it's healthier to be compassionate, healthier to be kind, and so on, because it's, it's good for you to have support, to have a community, and so on. Or, let's go to the alternative theory, and that is that there is some higher force, and that higher force created everything with design and told us by doing this you will be healthier. And that's why you're wired that way. So I'm not here to dictate or preach which approach to take. I'm just presenting it in in palatable terms and relevant terms that we can all look at and say, okay, let me think it through. Is there absolute proof one way or the other? Maybe not. But what resonates more? What makes more sense? What is a more rational approach to life? More comfortable, I understand, more comfortable is to do whatever you want. Except, obviously, when things are necessary for your coexistence, you don't. Obviously, we know that's more comfortable. But what's more correct? What sounds more legitimate? 
the founding father's statement that we're all born, we're all created equal and have endowed by the divine, by the creator with rights, or that we don't have necessary rights. It's something we just give each other or give ourselves in order to coexist. And when you go even further, the argument of design and plan and a blueprint. So you buy a machine, even a, law, a simple machine, a computer, a mobile phone. You have an operator's manual. It says the engineer of this phone or the engineer of this appliance or of this machine, here is what they wrote down, what makes this thing work well. You submerge it in water, you'll cause damage. In heat, will cause damage. Keep it in a certain environment. Here's how you clean it. Here's how you treat it. And then your machine will hum along. We all follow those instructions unless, again, we're sadistic or we're just negligent. Why? Because that's the engineer of the machine knows what makes the machine work and what makes the machine not work well. In our human being, in our human lives, our human bodies, again, it comes to health, pure physical health. You ask a nutritionist, a doctor, a scientist, what's good for the body, what's not good. But what about the areas that are more ethereal, like ethics, morality, spirituality? So there, who are you going to ask? And how do we know we can trust them? So it's true, it's far more, less tangible. Far easy, and not so always easy to define or determine. But as I said, gratitude. Other virtues actually make us work healthier, just like a good healthy food makes your body work healthy. So why does that not count? And does count because that is part of the game plan. The plan of the designer, just like the machine and the appliance so the cosmic designer and architect of the universe, which, which everywhere you look is filled with design, with mystery, with intrigue, with just mind-blowing design. So why would we not take it one step further? Design implies purpose, and purpose implies guidelines and rules, just like if a man-made machine, which is never as complex as human life and the universe itself, has a blueprint, has an operator's manual, doesn't it make sense that something with such extraordinary design by a cosmic designer would have a blueprint, would have a guidelines, what makes it work, what makes it not work, and that it be wired into the system, that when you do good, things thrive and flourish, and when you don't, things get destroyed? So the question, of course, some may ask, one second, if that's the case, why do the wicked prosper, uh, often prosper and the, and the good suffer? Even if they do, and that's a mystery which we don't have an answer for, that still doesn't mean being good doesn't make you a healthier person. It just means that this world, sometimes there's seemingly injustice. Maybe that's due to free will. It's due to God giving us, the Creator giving us free, uh, the ability to choose. And to choose always means that's possible for us to do something negative. But that doesn't mean a healthy lifestyle doesn't make you a healthier person. It just means we live in a world where sometimes cruel people control and can impose their will. But ultimately we believe, because that's also part of the design, that good will prevail. And in time, even though there may be a short period or a longer period of evil, of evil dominating, but it's, not, it's always going to be temporary. Because the health of the machine will ultimately prevail. Just like when you see a fire fire, a forest fire, burn down an entire forest, not intentionally. You see it regenerating. A fascinating rebirth. The same thing is in life. The rebirth, the recreation. That's what healthy things do. They, re- they reborn, they recreate, they will ultimately emerge. So even if the, the earth is parched and completely destroyed by fire slowly, 
in time, the earth will regenerate its nutrients, and you'll see saplings begin to sprout again. The same thing is in the collective history. Goodness will always ultimately emerge because it's a natural force that drives the engine, because it's driven by a design that is, comes from a good place. That is this approach. Now, again, I'm not here to tell you what to do. I will say that obviously our subjective self would probably prefer less accountable life than a more accountable life. But if you use your mind, you tell me what makes more sense. A life of accountability? A life where you answer to someone, where you answer to something greater than yourself? Or one where you, whatever your subjective interests are, that's what dictates your actions. So when you think of it that way, again, everybody has their own conclusions to come to. But my objective is to make the case, obviously, how one makes moral decisions. And then you have to make this decision. How will you make your moral decisions? And I don't just mean by following the laws in the book and because of the fear that the, the, the deterrent and the fears or incentives of reward or the deterrent of punishment or being caught and so on. I'm talking about the things that are beyond that, the things that come from within you. Things you do because out of love, things that you do out of your own commitment, not because someone's watching you or because someone is, 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 um, can, can um, arrest you. I'm talking about that which comes from within, the things we do out of love. And out of love, you see, look at parents who have children. They may be very selfish people. And even as parents, they may be so, but generally a healthy parent is going to sacrifice for their child. And it doesn't come with a lot of effort. At times you're very uncomfortable, you know, staying up at night and you can complain and sometimes say, why did I do this? But there's a certain natural inclination of a parent to nurture their child, even at their own expense. So again, the evolutionary uh, biologists will argue that's part of evolution, protecting your young, like any creature does. That's one argument. Or is it based on an inherent goodness, an inherent design and plan, an inherent ethical compassion that we all have, and which, of course, is more pronounced parent to child? Now, we live in a society that has, I can't say opted, but a big part of our academic world. And this is a product of the Enlightenment that worked hard to cut God out of the picture have created a system where they say we don't need God. They don't say there is no God. We don't need God. We can explain it all without God. Now, whether you could or you can't is arguable. My argument would be, and I'm not going to go into it here in detail that you can't really because there are certain areas where you end up with, with a question. You may not find the answer in God, but you'll have an answer that, will not, that you won't, you'll be left with a question. For example... Even if you're able to trace the universe back to the Big Bang 12, 13 billion years ago, whatever the age is. Yeah, what, everybody remains with the question, what put that, put that first bag of gas there? Before it collided, before it created the explosion. And there a scientist, an a, a honest scientist will tell you, that's the area that is called metaphysics, is beyond me. As a scientist, I can tell you what happens from the moment that something exists and how that evolves into a more sophisticated, a more complex organism and life as we know it. But how that existence came from non-existence, 
beyond my domain. That's a philosophical domain, a theological domain, or a domain that we don't even go, go, we don't even enter that place. We enter into once something exists. However, yes, the metaphysicists and the theologians, and especially the mystics, do speak about that. Because for them, that's the most important thing. Where did it all come from? So, but, but let's put that aside for a moment. That would be that you can't explain everything purely with scientific way. And even scientists will tell you that. They'll say, but we don't need God because we can explain what we need to explain to develop technology, to understand the universe. We can explain it without getting back to what put the first particle there in the first place. That would be their argument. Some go further and they actually distort and say, no, we don't, there is no God. How do they know that? How do they explain the first particle? They don't. But let's get back to the ethical discussion. If you get to the world of ethics and morality, as I said, if you're going with a rational mind, how will you end up coming with a system and determining even for yourself what is right, what is wrong? If there isn't this higher power that either communicated that directly through words, which would be called the Torah, or through implanting within us the instincts in our DNA, the instincts of empathy, the instincts of what is right and wrong, which we see people have and little children have it from young age. Without that, you have a weaker, a, a very weak, I would argue, philosophical grounding and foundation for ethics that have absolute value that we all have to answer to. And you would not be able to have, put into the Constitution, into the Declaration of Independence, all men are created equal and endowed by the Creator with inalienable rights. You couldn't put that statement in there. Because who says that's correct? When you add into the equation, as I said, the whole concept of design and plan, then morality becomes a whole different thing. It's not just what's right to do. It's what makes the organism work better. When you're charitable, when you're giving, you're actually exercising the muscle, what the Kabbalists, the mystics call, called chesed, kindness within your soul. When you exercise discipline, when you activate discipline, you're exercising the muscle called gevura, discipline. Same with compassion, same thing with determination, same thing with humility, same thing with, with bonding, and same thing with dignity. These are all actually components within you. So just like muscles need exercise and conditioning to make them work better, same thing as our psyches have also so-called spiritual muscles, faculties, that when you use them correctly, they actualize and make you a healthier person. So besides the fact that it's the right thing to do is to share and be charitable and give to someone else, for them, it could be doing for you more than even doing for someone else because that's what makes the organism work better because that's the plan and the design in the first place. And frankly, everything in life actually is that way. You build a house, you build a company. Every piece of the, of the house, every piece of the company, every part, every component, every employee is fulfilling a function. And if they do the function the way you planned it, it'll be a healthy company. And it'll be a healthy home. And if they don't, it'll undermine your company and you'll fire them if you come to be aware of it. Why? Because it's not making the organism work better. What makes the employee will say, I want to do what I want. Well, I'm paying you, you do what I want. Because what you're doing is not good for the entity. And you can explain it to the person that following your own desires as good intentions may, as, as good as your intentions may be, is undermining the good of the entity. And this is even a simple man-made structures, companies, businesses, homes, schools, organizations, enterprises. How much more so when you talk about 
the vast universe. So it's like going to an architect. You build an unbelievable, unbelievable mansion. And the someone who thinks he's a wise guy says, I don't really see what we need this room for. We can close this window, take out this piece, this corner. And the architect comes and says, what are you doing? You say, I don't see the need for it. You don't know my plan. By doing that, you're undermining my whole big plan. Or as the, the purportedly the Archduke of Austria, when he first heard the first symphony from, uh, from, uh, from Mozart, he said to him, Mozart, beautiful. He thought he was a connoisseur of music. But far too many notes. That's what he told him. And Mozart responded, Your Majesty, you're right. But not one more than necessary. Because you don't understand all the details. You think, too many notes, too long. When you understand the bigger design, then every piece is, is, is critical. And take out one little piece, the whole building can fall. Even if it won't fall, it'll undermine a part of the plan. We, each of, our, each of us, is a musical note in a larger symphony. And there's purpose and design to our lives. And our behavior either lives, lives up to and realizes that purpose and actualizes that potential in that purpose within us, or God forbid, the other way around. That's the case for morality of a different sort. And then choices are made very differently. Not based on whims, not based on what you're in the mood of, or based on what makes sense, but based on actually listening to a higher authority. So how, where do you find this higher authority and how do you know you can trust it? It's really, again, not the scope of this discussion, but briefly, if indeed that higher authority put us here with a plan, what do you think he or she or it didn't anticipate that problem? That there'd be human beings who may corrupt and may distort and may abuse what that higher entity, that higher power wants us to do? So you had to build into the system an immunity to protect us from the corrupt, from the corrupt clergy, from the corrupt rabbis, from the corrupt anything that may corrupt the message. This is really a discussion I once gave a long time ago, well, more than once on this topic, who to trust in authorities. But suffice it to say that the message can get through to us and it will resonate because we're wired to recognize what's true. And there's ways to be even hold authorities accountable. So if you hear something from someone who's claiming this is what the higher authority wants you to do, you can always check with someone else. You could always ask for sources. You could always research it. Ultimately, like with a doctor, if you trust a doctor, obviously it prescribes a medicine. You may not go do all the research that he did. You're trusting him. Same thing with a rabbi. Same thing with an, uh, an authority that can tell you what is, what is God's higher plan and what is ethics and morals. But as long as, if you haven't found that one, a person like that you can trust, then there are ways to verify. There are ways to check. There are ways to account, be, hold a person like that accountable. And then, of course, there's the resonance within us. But we need to be brutally honest and brutally, have brutal integrity and really open not to just feel right, not just to argue because we want an excuse to do whatever you want, but to actually feel, that necessi- feel the, nece- the honest necessity to find what is true. And when you're looking for truth, you'll find it. But you have to be ready to hear a truth that may not always make you comfortable. You have to recognize that we are the last people that can judge the truth of something because we're going to see whether it fits into our agenda, whether it works for us. So there are many ways to find that truth, and that's what we need to be looking for. So 
This has actual consequences and implications in every aspect of our lives. The choices we make, the families we'll build, what we'll teach our children, how we'll behave at work, how we will interact with each other, the integrity and the wholesomeness of our relationships, the reliability and trust that people can have in us, our ability to yield and be flexible. The list goes on. There's no area that this does not affect. And you always need that bittel, the word I often use, that Hebrew word, which defies an accurate English translation, but it's something, a combination of modesty, humility, suspending yourself to recognize a higher truth. Being in the zone, channeling something greater than yourself. And you become that channel. That's the ultimate experience of true morality, true ethics. And there are ways to reach that place, as I mentioned. So, difficult topic. I hope I did justice to it in this short presentation. As always, if you have any questions or comments or rebuttals, just send them to us at, at MeaningfulLife.com. You can directly contact us through our website, and you'll find many more resources at our, on our website, MeaningfulLife.com. Please engage with us. Let's, uh, let's spread the words, share with others, like a ripple effect. Discussions like this is what creates a healthier society because we are open with each other. And that doesn't mean we have to agree about everything, but we can talk about it openly in a civil and decent way and always get clarity. I always learn things, not necessarily from those that agree with me, but especially from those that disagree or have a, a different approach or have an argument to make. So we actually can grow and learn from each other by respecting each other's perspective, but always with intention, not just to win, not just to be right, but to actually be truthful, to be honest, and to look for a morality and ethics that really is about a search for a transcendent truth, not a my truth, your truth, something that transcends us all and unites us all, and at the same time preserves the integrity of our individuality. It's not about conforming to someone else's truth, because you're going to a truth that's beyond us all. Like when we say all men are created equal, and they're all endowed with rights. That's not some, all. And by, that, by virtue of that, we all respect that, at the same time, we all have our individual expression of our rights. So with that, let me sign off and say we're here every Wednesday, 8.30 p.m. approximately. I also encourage you, these programs that we offer Meaningful Life Center are all, or many of them are free of charge and really dependent upon, supported by community um, sponsorships and dedications. So I invite you, encourage you to be generous and make a donation at MeaningfulLife.com sponsorship. You can honor and sponsor a program, any program, this one or the others that we offer. And on the website, you can find the many different listings we have, the different subscription lists. And you can honor a loved one or a or memory of a loved one. And it's a great way to eternalize the soul and immortalize people, those of us who have family members or others that have, are physically no longer in the, with us, to honor and perpetuate their memory and legacy. And of course... On the other side, Lahavdil separating from life to life, those that are with us honoring a birthday, a graduation, a, a milestone in every possible way, a marriage, and, and so on. And uh, everyone be blessed until next Wednesday. This has been Simon Jacobson. Thank you so much. <laughs>